production. Want to learn how to feel good whilst attracting what you want into your life? I have designed a course for you using the manifesting methods I use daily. This is an audio course, so it can be easily listened to in the car, going for a walk or on your daily commute. And I've designed printable worksheets with exercises to help you practice what you're learning. All the info on the course is in this episode show notes, or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Erin Mullen is a radio and TV host, as well as a proponent for social justice. Erin's advocacy has helped in the passing of the new Australian legislation, the Online Safety Act, which has resulted in tougher laws for child and adult cyberbullying and abuse. My conversation with Erin traverses many realms. It's about endeavouring to connect with and express that which is truly meaningful, the importance of gender equity, the impact of cyberbullying and navigating the waves of grief after the death of her dad. When you die, which is the end of life, those people at your hospital bed, Mm. those people holding your hand, those people who loved you, for you, are the only thing that matters. Loving with everything I've got and being loved in return by the people that, that matter to me, I think that's a life of greatness. All the other stuff, the jobs, the gigs, the money, the houses, doesn't count for shit. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Erin Mullen is the host of the Today FM breakfast show, Husey, Ed and Erin, and the Sunday night Sky News Australia show, Erin. In its essence, this conversation is about community and the experiences that shape who we become. Parts of this interview were recorded at the NIB International Women's Day event. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to reevaluate your potential, find power in yourself and limitless capabilities. Erin Molan, thank you for joining me today. We've actually just, we're in the Sydney office, which is different for me because I'm obviously based in Melbourne. We just came off this unbelievable panel that we just did for International Women's Day for NIB and there were just some fabulous women, including yourself, in sport and we were talking about, you know, how their journeys have been. You talked a bit about your journey, which we're going to get into now. So did you enjoy yourself up there? I had an absolute ball and I've really enjoyed listening to the other ladies speak. And I think um, I do a a fair few of these each year, International Women's Day, and and talk about my story a lot. But there's something really cathartic hearing other women who have gone through something similar share their experience. and, And also in some ways, it legitimises in my mind what I went through as well yeah. to hear Kate who from the AFL world talk about the fact that she had to walk away because it was too difficult and which breaks my heart because you shouldn't ever have to walk away from a job you love because of the most ridiculous abuse and attitudes. 
But in some ways, it also, it comforts me in that it reminds me how really horrific my experience was and that it wasn't that I wasn't, you know, strong enough or I struggled. It was because it was horrific. Yes. And yeah, there was a real sense of that and and just lots of inspiring stories as well. And I really enjoyed it. It was good. And we'll get into more of your story, but I want to start as I always do the podcast at the beginning, which is a bit about your upbringing. And I know that you travelled a lot when you were young. Your your father had to travel. So you were in Indonesia for a while. Can you tell us a bit about that? I love Indonesia. It's one of my favourite places. We moved over there for the first time when I was seven and lived there for three years. So dad was the army attaché at that stage at the Australian embassy and then had a second stint back when I was between about maybe 12 and 15, so another kind of three years uh, over that period. And that was a real kind of crucial period because quite formative years and what happened in that country during that time, which was 1998, was an incredible moment internationally. So uh, just a little bit of background, uh, Indonesia had been ruled by President Suharto for 30 years, uh, incredibly corrupt uh, the country, extreme poverty, and to be there when a country decided that they'd had enough and that they wanted to fight for democracy and fight for a new leader, to watch people take to the streets, to be there when the Trisakti University shootings mm. happened, to watch a country stand up and, and fight for what we take for granted back here in Australia as a, a teenager was an incredible experience. And it's what really lit in me this, this flame that is yet to be extinguished when it comes to the media and journalism and a free press and politics and foreign affairs and national security, all these things now that I I love, uh, it probably all began to some extent from that one experience in Indonesia. And, you know, going to international schools was amazing, meeting people from all over the world, flying on aeroplanes, just the whole experience of of driving down the street and having lepers on the side of the road, women who who couldn't afford to feed their babies, seeing poverty in a way that you don't see it in Australia. Mm -hmm. It exists absolutely, but it's not as in your face. Really changed me as a person and I guess I became quite an empath off the back of that. I'm passionate about charity work. I I love to help people. I'm not saying I'm Mother Teresa, but I I really feel, feel passionately about helping. And that's been the basis of a lot of the the charity work that I do. So it was an incredible experience. And I speak the language as well, which is another bonus on top. I wonder for you as a child moving around a lot, was that difficult to form friendships and to not be in the stability of one place for a long period of time? Oh, absolutely. Uh, 16 schools I went to. So you do 12 years of schooling and I managed to go to 16 different schools. So look, that was really difficult. I mean, at the time, as when you're younger, it's a lot easier. I think as you start to get into high school, it becomes a lot more challenging. And some kids really struggle with that. Other kids handle it and become more resilient and, and develop and become stronger off the back of it. But I I do remember with a lot of other military kids, you either could do it or you couldn't and some really struggled. We were all okay. I'm one of four kids and we're very close. And I think that's one of the reasons that our family is so close is that for a lot of the time we only had each other, you know, we'd always be together, but starting new schools. Yeah. Like, as I said, it's high school, as you start to get a little bit older, trying to form those friendships was much more challenging and, you know, there'd be lunchtime spent in toilets because, you know, you didn't have anyone to sit with. And so, yeah, that was a fairly unsettled start. But I look at the other side of it and think, you know, I can walk into a room and speak to anyone. I can 
meet people. I can do a lot of things that that, that experience forced me to do probably well before my time. So I, I think it's helped me become a stronger person rather than mm. been detrimental. Can you tell us a bit about your father's role and why it was that you had to move so much and what he did? Yeah, so he was in the army for 40 years. So he joined the army as a 17-year-old. He caught the train from Melbourne wow. to Canberra and joined Duntroon. And the year he graduated from Duntroon uh, was the year the Vietnam War ended. So he just missed out on going to Vietnam. But that was his passion for many, many years. And as you become more senior in the military, there are sometimes uh, opportunities that come up. I mean, you move around all the time and go to different battalions and six RER and one brigade. But then he entered the diplomatic world. So he had learned to speak Indonesian and he was obviously an incredible soldier. So he got two opportunities over in Jakarta at the embassy. So with the army, you're always moving. Every year, every couple of years, you get a new posting. But then with dad, he was pretty incredible in that he did two diplomatic postings as well. And then as we were later teens, he um, went over to Iraq for a year. So served in the war in Iraq. He was in East Timor. So, you know, we've, a lot of our childhood was dad away in pretty dangerous situations as well. So yeah, he was a soldier. He then, when he left the army, uh, then got elected, joined the Senate. So he was a senator as well for New South Wales in federal parliament. And he was up until, yeah, the, the day he died a couple of months ago. Mm. So his whole life essentially is dedicated to service and something I'm immensely proud of. When he was in those more dangerous areas, how did your family cope with that? Mum is incredible and mum's the most impressive person in, in our family, hands down. She, she's amazing. She sheltered us from it a lot. Uh, looking back now and and as now, you know, the host of a show that does a lot of foreign affairs and national security and, and looking at wars and even looking back at the Iraq war and, and how dangerous it was, I didn't quite comprehend that at the time. And now having heard stories and even once Dad passed, some of the, the most incredible mm. stories that have emerged of his time over there and he's always been a soldier soldier. He, he's not an officer who would stand at the back and say, go forth, fellas, I'll meet you back here and you guys go do the hard stuff. Dad would never ask anyone to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. So if they were going somewhere that was dangerous, Dad would be there, even though he was a general. You know, a lot of generals would hang back. Dad never would. So we knew we were watching the news each night and seeing thousands of people being killed. It was awful. But Mum, in the most incredible way, just really sheltered us from a lot of it. So we didn't probably understand at the time how much danger he was in. We certainly did after the fact, but at the time, yeah, it was it was hard. And, and to be honest, you know, Dad was always more strict than Mum. Like it wasn't like a Von Trapp, you know, yes. sound of music situation. We didn't have to march or line up in the corridors. But, you know, when Dad was away, it was like, oh, we can go to bed later. Yeah. I don't have to clean my room. So, you know, there were perks as yes. well. Like it was sometimes a bit more relaxed at home when Dad was away. Does your mum talk about how she handled that time? No, she she actually really doesn't. She's It's interesting. Our family are not, and I guess similar to a lot of people of their generation, not real talkers about feelings. Yeah. And even dad, you know, I, I used to laugh because I'm such a, an emotional person and I love to tell people I love them. And I reckon... With dad, even we, we started doing stuff together professionally, which was incredible. When dad joined the Senate, when I entered the media world, we'd, we'd do speaking events together. Really? Or I'd, I'd host a function. He'd be so my sweet. guest. I'd get him on my shows on radio and TV. <laughs> I'd always say to him, love you, dad. Lots of love. Love you, dad. And he's still, 
Thank you. Like he just, you know, that men of that generation, yes. even for him to, I know how deeply he loved us all, but even for him to say it back was a hard thing, let alone to talk about if times are tough or struggles or, but it's it's one thing that I really noticed towards the end of his life as he started to get sicker, he would he would say it all the time, which is, yeah, sorry. It's, it's still, it feels very, it's still very raw, Dad. So it's, it's you know, it hasn't. We haven't even been two months yet, so it's still a it's still a very hard thing to talk about. But he, um, yeah, he then towards the end would say it all the time, which was really lovely. I mean, I, I always knew that he he did love us, but it's amazing how that kind of thing changes. As you mentioned, he passed away very recently, only two months ago, as you said. And I wonder, he was such an important part of your life, as dads are, but everyone has different relationships mm-hmm. with their parents. And grief, navigating those waves can just be the hardest thing in the world. And I wonder for you, he obviously was sick. How have you managed that? I don't know if I am. If you'd said to me at this stage I'd be functioning, I'd be working, I'd be looking after my little girl, having lost him, I would have said you're joking. Dad would kill me if I was under a doona still sobbing every day, which I sometimes feel like doing. He was so strong. And even for us, he just, I was looking back at my text messages from him the other night. And I mean, I spoke to him almost every day and multiple times a day sometimes, but I'd always text him at night and in every morning, how are you feeling? Hey, dad, how are you feeling? And every single response, yeah, really good today, Ern. Really good today. Really, like he just his strength and and the way that he tried to protect us from his illness because we now know how much pain he was in and how horrific this disease was. And so I think whenever I feel like just just being defeated by it or succumbing to it, I actually think about him up there watching me and I say, no, not today. Yeah. So I have moments absolutely which I need to and I need to have moments where I, I sit with this, crippling pain and it is crippling but I think I'm probably in the best place as well to handle grief five years ago would have been a lot more difficult I I feel like emotionally and mentally and physically I'm probably as healthy as I've been so I feel like I I've got a good start with it but I I don't know I don't know if there's a kind of a, a guidebook or how you're supposed to do it and I, I just, any time I struggle, I, I just think of girlfriends who never knew their dads. I think of, yeah. of people who don't have the kind of relationship and, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. To feel less pain would mean that I had less yeah. with him and he was less to me if I felt less pain. And I just, the kind of dad that he was and the person that he was and the strength that he was to me. I'm the luckiest person in the world. So this is such a cliche, but this, what I'm going through now is a price that, that yes. I pay for having someone like him as my dad. They say that grief is love turned inwards. So for the amount you loved is the amount that you grieve. Yeah. I still kind of, like, you know, I'll, I'll hear a story about sea mines and my first thing is to pick up the phone and call him, Dad, is that a good idea? Or or a story about the threat of war with China or will they invade Taiwan? Or, you know, the the defence review, is this enough? And I I still, and I don't know when that will stop, but I still have moments where I go for my phone and and then when you realise, and yeah, it is is really, 
really bloody hard, but there are so many people doing exactly what I'm doing now, doing it with less support in harder situations. And, and hey, if you've got, you know, a four and a half year old as well, you can't be self-indulgent either. So I think having her as well is just incredible because I don't want her to be around pain and sorrow any more than she has to be. So there's moments of it and I explained to her that I miss Jimmy, which is what we called him. Uh, But for the most part, just get on with it. What was the last thing that he said to you? (laughs) It's a hard one because if you've lost someone to cancer, it is just this really cruel, horrible disease that you kind of go through these phases and, and look, we were all at the hospital for the last kind of couple of weeks and we we were told, you know, that there will be a time when he'll lose consciousness and he'll um, he'll slip into a coma and then, you know, this will fail and this. And so you kind of, you just, it really is unbelievable. I don't know how doctors do it or how, mm. you know, people do. I guess I'm, I'm doing it and how people survive this, but I kept thinking... And, and someone said to me, oh, have you said to him what you need to say? There's actually, there was nothing that I needed to say. I, I kept thinking, do I say something powerful or do I, do I try to explain to him what he means to me? And then I thought, actually, all that will do is in some way probably make him feel uncomfortable, I think. I wasn't sure. I knew that he knew how much I loved him and what he meant and I knew how much he loved me and the only thing I wanted to do was make what he was going through as painless as possible for him and I thought if I sit there and get emotional and try and tell him something because we both know he's dying then that might make him hurt more and that was my biggest thing was just to try and lessen his pain. So, look, we were... It was probably just, I think, you know, I gave him, his feet were very sore at the end. So, you know, Dad, you want a foot massage and so and nice. that kind of thing. But the last, uh, before he went into a really bad space, I was leaving his room and he kind of called me back in and my siblings had all walked out and he was in bed and I sat down and held his hand and he just said, and you look bloody awful. <laughs> and I went, went, what? And he said, you look really awful and that makes me really sad. And I went... Sweet Jesus. I was like, oh, my God. And anyway, and I'm saying to him, well, Dad, like, I haven't slept. Like, yeah. you know. Maybe if you weren't I'm dying, I'd exactly. be looking better. Exactly. Yeah. But I tell you what, it did, it was a catalyst for me to drink a lot more water. Yes. And I remember going outside and the siblings and mum are going, what, what did he say? What did he say? And, and I told them and I'm like, and I'm the hot one. You guys are screwed. <laughs> Wait till he tells you what he thinks of you. So we did, look, it, it's amazing some of the things that, that you laugh at as when you're going through this, you know, some of the things that we would joke about sitting around his bed, holding his hand Mm. and these things that just help you survive. I mean, Dad, in fact, was telling one of the last stories he told before he slipped into into a coma was talking about, you know, what he loved so much, you know, loved the most apart from our family. And that was the army and the military. And he was explaining about some aeroplane that, did this and, you know, in this war and, and how they used to refuel it back in the 1920s. And, you know, and I think that for him, for us to just be there, talk to him about that kind of stuff, 
was was what he wanted rather yes. than for us to sit and talk about our emotions because we all knew that it was horrific. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so there was this one thing that I, I did say and I, I don't think he would have heard because he'd slipped into the coma by now but you, you just don't know. I was watching this thing at James Packer had done an interview and had said about his dad, it was a real privilege to be your son. Mm. And that just resonated and stuck with me because that's just such a lovely way to think about because it is truly the, the greatest privilege of my life is being his daughter. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was just talking. I didn't, I just said to him that I'd heard it and that that's how I feel, dad. And yeah, so I, I don't know if he heard it. I don't know, but. That's yeah. so beautiful. I mean, a lot of people look at death as being such a scary thing. And, you know, recently the lady across the road, she was passing. It happened so fast in four months. And, you know, I had this regretful thing in my head because she's a older, beautiful Greek woman. And she came up to me one day and she's like, I've just been diagnosed. And I was like, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Knowing in my mind she wasn't yeah. going to be fine. Anyway, and then, you know, summer holidays, we went away, la, la, la. It came back. I was dropping my son at the bus stop and I saw her husband outside watering the garden. I was like, oh, how is she? She's in a coma on the couch. I was like, you're joking. He's like, she's got a week. Oh, my God, oh, my God. And he's like, do you want to come and see her? This was last week. And I was like, all right. And just so much fear came over me of I just can't. Like, are you sure you want me to go in? He's like, yeah, yeah. And it was so interesting. You know, I went into their beautiful little house. There was no one there. She was lying on the couch. And I I just was so scared to go up close to her. So I was kind of looking at her from a distance. But you know what I noticed, Erin? It was so peaceful in there. It was this serene stillness that I don't think I've ever felt before. You know, the idea that death is is imminent and it's and it's there in front of you. And even though I was scared and this was really full on, there was such a an mm. beautiful peace that came over as well. And I left and apparently she died that night. But it made me think about like then in my mind, I was so regretful. I should have gone up to her and this and that, but I was so scared to go up to her. So I looked at her from a distance and spoke to the husband. And we as humans, we don't know how to deal with death. You know, it's something that all of us are going to have to go through. We're all going to die and we're all going to know someone that dies before we die. Yet it's something that is not spoken about a lot and something that is like it it impacts us in such a heavy, heavy way. So I think you telling your story is so unbelievably important. I I think you're you're absolutely right. And and the the peace element as well is is really interesting. Uh, I I know that once dad slipped into the coma, we had kind of a, a couple of, he's one of seven or so siblings and we each had a couple of siblings to just text and let them know he slipped in, which means it could be a couple of hours before he passes or 48 hours. They give you that kind of guideline. And my auntie, Helen, his older sister wrote back and and said, you know, thanks so much for letting us know. By the way, it is such an incredible privilege to be there at the end of someone's Mm. life. It's amazing to be there at the start when you have a baby, but it's also a real privilege to be there at the end. And that with that word privilege again, 
really resonated with me. Mm. And it was so incredible for us all to be there with dad and, and for us all to be holding his hand. And I think in some way, whether you believe in in a God or in, in uh, a spirit or whatever it is, I feel like in some way, the only way you survive this this thing called death and the only way that we have survived thus far is, is the suffering that he had prior. Mm. And that's all we kept saying is we just want him to have peace. And to watch someone that you that you love so much who was, um, you know, six foot four, giant in stature, strong, but also incredibly beautiful and gentle, but this big, strong man just be reduced to what he was and what this disease did to him and his body and to watch him <laughs> suffer and be in so much pain, that moment of death, was awful when 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 he stopped breathing but there is this peace mm. and this relief that you never think you'd feel but because of the suffering this this sense of relief and peace is the other thing that you just go he is now at peace and that's you know that's all anyone i think really ever cares about for the person who's dying their concern is you mm. and for those left behind, your only concern above anything else is them. Yes. It's this just quite bizarre confluence of, of emotions, events, of, of things. But I, I think, yeah, for us, peace is, is all we wanted for him towards the end. When we knew that we couldn't save him, we just wanted him to have peace. When we were doing the event before, you spoke about how you've seen a psychologist for um, the first time, which I think is unbelievable. That <laughs> I can't believe it's taken you this long. But you said what, how amazing it's been that you've been able to talk to someone. They've been able to give you some wisdom and guidance. And Tamika, who was on the panel with us, she is a player for the NRL. She was also talking to us about how when she saw a sports psychologist that absolutely changed her life and the way that she was viewing everything she was doing after not being able to play for a while. Let's have a listen to her talking about that. I actually had a serious injury in 2020. I fractured my back and that put me out for six months, which was three months of actually no exercise. And that hit me so hard. I did not even realise um, it was possible. I was doing all of my rehab. I was doing everything properly, seeing the physio, completing everything, and I actually wasn't getting any better. I went to a sports psychologist, which there's a bit of a stigma around it. It's really funny, but the second I started talking, I was like, why haven't I done this earlier? Mm. And she was honestly, straight away, she was just like, if you're not helping Tamika the human, how is Tamika the athlete gonna get any better? And that hit home straight away. I wonder for you how seeing a psychologist has helped you through this process? Yeah, it's been, it's been life-changing for me. And it's interesting in that one twentieth of the time has, has been spent talking about dad. It's everything else. Yes. And it's, um, it's incredible because that was the reason, that was the catalyst. But what we're doing is unpacking so many other things and just saying out loud so many other things and, and past traumas and, and all these things that enable me to handle my feelings better. Mm. So talking to her is not 
going to make the pain of losing dad go away. But what she's helping me do is manage my emotions better. And and I saw this thing the other day that said, you know, I don't go to my psychologist to be happy all the time because that's impossible. I go to my psychologist to be better at all the feelings. Yeah. I really love that. And I, I think I am already. And as I said, it, it's been three months and I already just feel so much more well-equipped to deal with so many other different things. And as you know, sometimes just saying something out loud mm. and saying something to someone or something that, that you might be ashamed of or, or a feeling or an emotion or an experience and you say it out loud and suddenly the cloak is off and, and you feel freer and you feel lighter. So I, I feel like in some ways, you know, as I said earlier, I spoke about Dad telling me I looked bloody awful. I've <laughs> never been a water drinker. My mum you know, she wakes up and cracks a Diet Coke and she has 20 a day and like, I'm just, my whole life has just been diet, soft drink and bloody all this other crap. But I feel like in some ways with dad, ways that I can honour him to a degree is, you know, when he said that, I'm like, God, I do look quite drawn. I look, you know, I'm not, and I I just went such a silly thing, but I'm now going to drink two litres of water a day for you, Dad, and then even with the psychologist, like Dad never saw a psychologist, as I said, didn't talk about feelings or emotions, but I just have this real thing at the moment that I want to do things that make me as happy as possible because he said, you know, you, you look bloody awful and you look miserable and that makes me really sad. And so, and that was the last kind of one-on-one conversation we had. And in my mind, I'm saying, okay, well, Dad, I'm going to drink a heap of water. I'm going to not be miserable and sad. I'm going to try and become someone that is the opposite of those things. And of course, I'm going to feel that way at the time when your dad's yeah, sick in hospital, course. but in some way that I can honour him and, and do something positive out of this is do something really important work on myself and be, just be, be happier, be lighter, be better, be all those things that I know would make him happy. Mm. I think putting your health first is very important. And I wonder for you, you were the first female on the footy show panel. Hats off to you. That would have been a really tough gig. Can you tell us a bit about that time and how that was for you? How many years was that? I was with the show for I think nearly seven years. Yeah. So, and this is the Sydney foot, yeah, footy the rugby show. league footy yeah. show, which had been around for 30 odd years and very blokey. It, it was a real shock to the system for a lot of people and... It was really hard. I I had no idea what was coming. I was very naive. I was well qualified to do the job. I was very good at the job. Silly me. I thought that would actually just be enough. I was being paid to do the job, but I didn't realise what was to come. I don't know if if anyone really could have realised what was to come, but it was brutal. It was very quick in that my first show when, you know, I got a fair and went, oh my God, I nailed it. I worked my bloody ass off. I'd do 30 pages of notes before every show. I'm very self-deprecating. So had I screwed it up, I'd tell you. I yeah. nailed it. Got off air, was on top of the world, thinking this is incredible. I've worked so hard my whole life for this opportunity. I've got it. I've nailed it. And then my phone just started blowing up and I had, you know, lovely text messages from people, but social media, which was still fairly newish at the time, and I was, you know, on Twitter and whatever else for work, like as journos, mm. we used it a lot. And just suddenly they all started coming through and you, oh, it was just yeah, it was a, a real baptism of fire, I guess you could say, and something that I wasn't equipped to deal with at all. What did they say? Oh, just, you should die, you know, just you should be raped. The most horrific things that I, I remember going through and looking for a comment 
regarding something I'd said, like if I'd got a position wrong mm. on on the field or if I'd hadn't understood something or if I'd gotten my information mixed up or something. I remember looking through because that's all I cared about. I didn't care what I looked like, what I wore, what my gender was. My basis for having done a good job was did I nail the execution of my brief, which was yes, I did, absolutely. Did I know my stuff? Absolutely. Was I prepared? Absolutely. Was I engaging? Was I natural? Did I have a laugh? Absolutely. All those things that are important in television. Every single one with either to do with my appearance or my gender and that was it. And I just remember thinking, this is bizarre. How can someone want me to die because they don't like my hair or because the dress I'm wearing or because, you know, I've got tits? Maybe you could just say you don't like me, but die? You want me to die? Mm. Like it was, and, and it got to the stage where, you know, I was living in fear. Like I, when I was pregnant, I was, you know, someone was sending me multiple messages, then showed up at my house threatening to really? rape my unborn child. Like I've had, I've had two different blokes and these are only two of uh, go through courts and be charged because this is the issue with online stuff and this is why it, it takes people a little while to understand and I feel like we're there now. People would say, oh, just ignore it. Oh, God, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, they don't like your hair, just ignore it. That's fine. You know, it, I work in the public eye and if, if someone thinks that someone not liking my hair is going to offend me, they've got another thing coming, I could not care less. It's part and parcel. People are going to be critical. That's fine. The point I'm making about the hair thing is that that's the, that's the content. It was gender related. It was not about what I'd said. That stuff doesn't make you feel unsafe. You think you're an idiot, whatever. <laughs> but it's the threats that then turn into real life threats. This is, this is what happens with online. You know, it, could, it starts online. And I had an issue with both of these men who were arrested, put in front of courts and convicted, started online and then started showing up to my place, started showing up, showing up, showing up. I'd be arriving somewhere, they'd be there. So this starts online, then it becomes real life. You know, I'd be getting out of my car downstairs and just my heart racing, just living in fear all the time. And then people saying, just ignore them. And I'm thinking, if he sent a threat saying he's going to kill me at this time and place, I need to see that. I need to go to the place. I need to, you know, it's this whole... It just, it starts to overtake your life. I remember having, giving birth to my daughter and having her on my lap and just scrolling my phone and just, because, you know, there'd been a story on her birth, paparazzi in the bloody hospital car park taking photos. And then suddenly I'm looking at this thing and just, you know, death threats against her. And I'm going, oh my God. And I'm thinking in my mind, what have I done? Like, like what have I done to deserve my three-week-old baby having her life threatened. That's right. I sat on a bloody show about football as a woman. It would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. You know, it would be if I'd introduced like, you know, legislation that had taken people's homes or if I'd gone to war or or, or did a drive-by shooting or something, you'd go, okay, look, it's still not pleasant, but I've done something that might be deserving of some backlash. But for the love of God, all I ever, ever did was my job. When those men were in court, did they even say why they did that? No, they're cowards. No. Do you ever regret staying on that footy show? I don't. No, I, I, I definitely don't. I regret the last year of it. I think I, I wish I'd been stronger. I'd raised concerns about the fact that I was hosting it on my own and it was still going to be called the footy show. And I'd said to my bosses at the time, it's not going to be the footy show. Without Fatty, without the other guys, it's not the footy show. If you're just doing a post-match thing, okay, but we shouldn't call it the footy yes. show. 
and that was rejected. And look, I'm not saying whether I was right or wrong or, you know, everyone has their opinion, but that I would have been much stronger on. Whether I still would have even done it, you know, I I wasn't comfortable doing it, uh, but I was under contract and it was my job. So the regrets that I have, not, not for staying on as long as I did, I had the most incredible time in that show. The, the, my career highlights are so much of yeah. that show. I had, the, the boys were amazing. We had so much fun. It was, you know, it was a bloody incredible lifestyles, travelling around, um, you know, people want a photo with you. People think you're, you're exciting and special and it, it was amazing. But it's just that what has, you know, muddied the waters, I guess, to an extent just over that that last year, that decision to use me as the sole host to still call it the footy show, something that I had flagged that I didn't want it to be called that, but I wasn't strong enough at the time to push on that. And I I regret that. I wish that that had been listened to or taken more into account. And then, yeah, but they're all lessons, you know, now even taking on Breakfast Radio, different things. Now I learned so many valuable lessons from that last year on that show in terms of the fact that I am strong enough to say no or to I'm experienced enough now, I've got mm. enough runs on the board to determine what I want to do. If I, I say no to more things now than I ever would have three, four years ago. And I think you, you get into a position where you earn the right to be able to yes. do that. I, I, I didn't back then, but that's probably in the regret space, that's probably sits there. You helped pass an amazing act that helped with cyberbullying. How did you even get to the stage where you helped with that? Oh, uh, look, I, I had obviously experienced it for a long time, but I never wanted to talk about it. So when I'd be doing an, an interview and people would ask, I'd be very embarrassed by it because I found it embarrassing. This is before I understood what it was. This is when I still thought it was just everyday people hating me and feeling the need to to hurt me. And I would get embarrassed when people would ask. And then Anthony Seabold, uh, who was a former Broncos coach, still a coach now, a very good friend of mine now, went through something really horrific in Brisbane and he's not even on social media. But there were things written on social media that ruined his life at that stage and brought his children into it, made false allegations. It was just this horrific campaign that hurt deeply a lot of people. And I remember... When that all came out and and reading some of what had been written, I was on doing Jonesy and Amanda's show and I'd never really spoken about it, never, and I just lost it. I actually just, I just said enough, you know, enough of this bullshit. (laughs) Honestly, this ruins lives. We cannot pretend that this is just, oh, it's in a fantasy land. It's not. We move seamlessly between the real world and the online world now every single day. We all do. And even, and, and the crux of this was, he wasn't even on social media, yet his life was ruined by things written on social media. So this whole thing that used to exist, just get off social media, doesn't work. You can still be deeply hurt and you can still have your life ruined by things on social media, even if you're not on social media. And that was my moment where I thought, actually, this is ridiculous. If I walk into a shop and there's water on the floor and I slip, they are liable for my safety. Instagram, Facebook, they can allow the most terrific things to happen and no one is holding them to account. So I decided social media platforms, you need to be held to account. Individuals who perpetrate, individuals who offend, individuals not who write that they hate my dress. I don't care. That's fine. You're still mean, but whatever. People who threaten, people who abuse, people who would break the law in real life because all we're doing is mirroring what happens in the real world. 
if you do it in the real world and it's a crime, then it sure as hell should be online. And it wasn't. And I just, I got angry. Mm. I got really pissed off. And I just went, enough. I'm so sick of being embarrassed by this. I'm so sick of being subjected to this same shit. I'm sick of being scared when I get out of my car. I have to do that anyway at night because I'm a woman. I have to be scared anyway, let alone from psychos online who there are no repercussions for their behaviour. And you're not going to stop anyone. If there is no deterrent, these assholes will not stop. So I thought, this is simple. We're not going to clog the court system. I don't want bloody a 1,000 people in jail every day, but we have to create a deterrent. There has to be a reason that dickheads stop doing this because if they're an arsehole, they're an arsehole. You can't change Mm. that. But arseholes don't go rob banks every day because there are consequences, you know? Greedy people don't go rob shops because they know that if they get caught, they go to jail. There was no deterrent in this online space. So I just started to annoy the hell out of people. Uh, Judge, Judge Paul Conlon, who um, I knew through the NRL judiciary, um, he was amazing. I just started to annoy him and say, how, how does how does a law work, Judge? Like, how the yeah. hell do we do this? My sister, who's a lawyer, Peter Credlin, who worked in Parliament, mm. how do we do this? Uh, Warren Mundine, who's this amazing guy, who, former boss of the Labor Party, he'd been subjected to some horrific stuff that had nearly caused him to take his own life. And he's a strong Indigenous man who, who's amazing. I went to him. We went and saw Paul Fletcher, the communications minister, and sat there and said, we need this, we need this. He's saying, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this. And I said, well, let's do this, let's do this. I then went and saw the PM, who I think had 10 million more important things to do that day, Scott Morrison. But to his credit, he saw me and I said, you've got kids, you've got two young girls. This is not a, a, a pretend made-up space. This takes lives. People lose their lives because of what is happening online. And he was, to his credit, I know that there's been a lot of criticisms of him and a lot of criticisms of, of different elements of his government. But this is one thing that they did and did incredibly well and he was all on board from the start. So it's essentially just annoying the hell out of people, pushing, 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 and then having a lot of other people come in and, and do some incredible work. It reminds me that panel we were just on, Sam Squires was talking about how she worked in news and all she wanted was to get the women's sports up. Yeah. <laughs> She wanted to be played on the television and everyone told her that she was crazy and she pushed and pushed and pushed till she made a difference. Here's a grab of her talking about that. In every newsroom, you ask anyone I've worked on, I was always on my little soapbox and people would always think that I was crazy and they'd always look at me in the newsrooms and all male newsrooms that we would look in as though I was the crazy one. I'd go to pitch a story and I'd be like, I'd be ready for 10 rounds of about, like, of there to say no, 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 and I'd be like, I'd be ready for them to say no, 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 and then I'd have reasons why we should do it and fight and fight and fight. If you have a passion or you have a vision, and people are telling you you're crazy, you're stupid, dismissing you, follow that passion, follow what you believe in, because one day they'll be sending you texts and phone calls and, and just saying, I remember when you said, you, you kind of, you said this was going to happen and it's nice and validating, but yeah, if you have that passion then just, and that vision, just follow it. That's exactly what you did and I wonder when people may have said, like, you're crazy, you can't, you know, mm. how are you going to pass a bill? How did you get over that? It's amazing. It's one of my proudest moments was being in Parliament when that bill passed. And I took my little girl. I don't, I'm very protective of her identity for obvious reasons. I, I don't share her on social media. Her dad's a, a homicide detective. So even from that perspective, he's very protective as well. But I took her, so I don't take her really to much, but I, I took her to Parliament House that day. And I hope you know, we've got some lovely photos down the track. I can explain to her what she was a part of because really she's who I did it for. I can't be saved. 
as in what I've gone through, I've gone through. The damage has been done basically with me, which is quite sad in, in a lot of ways. I feel like I'll never get back to the person I was before it. But what I care deeply about is stopping it from happening to anyone else mm. and particularly our kids. And when I started to talk about this, something that that just blew my mind and, and really reassured me that, that this mattered was this year three teacher sent me a letter and said, off the back of hearing me on Jonesy and Amanda, a handwritten letter and said, you know, I'm a year three teacher, so what, I think they're like seven or eight years yeah. old. And the first two hours every morning is not maths, not geography, not English. I spend dealing with the fallout of what has happened online the night before year three. And, you know, post-COVID, kids are all online. Even if kids aren't online, other kids are online who are writing and doing and sharing photos of things that are online. And he said, you know, I used to just say, oh, kids, just ignore it. He said, but having listened to you, I'm now saying, no, you cannot do that. If you do that, you get punished. He said, it's changed the whole dynamic. We've actually started to put things in place. I mean, you don't want to throw kids in jail, but where kids understand that it's wrong, there's a punishment in place. We explain to them why, how hurtful it is. He said, we've changed the the way that that we run and it's made such a difference. And I think you can't do anything in this world without having an online element to it, whether it's banking, whatever it is. It is such a big part of our lives now. And the laws that exist in the real world to protect us are there for a very good reason and they need to be reflected online. Whatever happened to those two men? Couldn't tell you, to be honest. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea and I don't care. Mm. I have no interest. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite strange in that way in that it's like when I leave a show or a job or a network or a, I have, when something ends, whether it was good, whether it was bad, mm. for some reason I just completely shut off to it in a way. So whereas, you know, it might be like an ex-boyfriend, like I don't want to know what they're doing, who they're dating. I don't stalk. I don't, you know, if it's a potential future one, but maybe (laughs) an ex, I I have girlfriends who would still a year later be looking, but as in, have I Googled either of them? Have I looked them up? Do I know what they're doing? Do I know? Nope. Absolutely no idea. No interest. Same as, as channel nine. Once I left, I just have this thing where I, I don't want to, once I'm not there, I almost shut off from, from things and then look ahead and whether that's left over from having to shut off to other things that were deeply hurtful and hard, I don't know. But, yeah, I have absolutely no idea what, what either of them are doing. I know one of them was a father of two girls. and Oh, my God. So, yeah, I don't know. You were at Channel 9 during that time. I would look upon them as being the parent in that situation. Did they protect you? They couldn't have protected me. Mm. They really couldn't have. There are ways that I could have potentially been supported better. But it was such a new world then that mm. I don't feel any any malice at all towards Channel 9 at all. You know, I feel like we're only just learning now what this beast is and, and how it works and, and how to deal with it. So, yeah, I, I look back and think, yeah, there could have been things done that, that may have helped, but they also may not have helped. Mm. And I, I felt you know, Channel 9 it was my first big job in a big city and they gave me so many incredible opportunities and there's so many incredible people there that I, I feel, I just feel very grateful, to be honest, mm. in that way. I don't feel let down at all by them. I think now they'd be very different in terms of how they deal with things, I'd say, absolutely. I wasn't the beneficiary of that back then, but I think 
really who could ever have have thought what was going to happen happened to the extent and even then when they were how do you then you know how do you support someone who's going through that I don't know I still don't know sometimes how to people reach out to me for support and I'm pretty well versed in this space and sometimes I struggle mm. to help people who are going through something as, as awful as this. So, yeah, I, I think we're just learning and we're getting better and I, I think, you know, as, as athletes come through, I think clubs are much better now in terms of preparing them for what will happen online and how to handle that. So I think everyone's just generally getting better but back when I was going through it at the worst times. I just don't think there was any understanding of, of the damage that it could do or mm. what it was. It was just this attitude of, oh, just ignore it. You mentioned before that you're a single mum and I wonder, having the life that you have doing so many different things in breakfast radio, how do you manage that? Oh, look, probably not well. I don't think I've got the balance right. In fact, I know I don't have the balance right. But as I was saying on our panel this morning, my priority is is being a mum. Mm. That, that's my number one thing in the world. And I have a beautiful four and a half year old. And I, I think one of the hardest, well, definitely without doubt, one of the hardest things that I've gone through recently is is separating from her father in that it means that I don't have my baby every night. So it then makes the time I have with her even more precious. Mm. So for me, anything that takes me away from time with her is a no. I just don't do it. I'm, I'm very lucky in that I work breakfast radio, which is brutal, but it means that I can be with her during the day. I feel like I work when she sleeps mm. and then Sky News is kind of at night. So, so similar situation at the opposite end of the day. So the balance, I've got absolutely no idea. I, I don't do social things really. I don't catch up with girlfriends. I don't go to dinners. I go to bed with my daughter at seven o'clock. Um, I hang out with her. So, you know, that's probably not healthy in a way. I'm, I'm sure I've, I could do that better. I probably need to foster female friendships better because at the moment I just don't have time to invest mm. in them. And, and as I said, my greatest fear is looking back and feeling like I wasn't there with her or that I, I put other things before her or that I missed out on the most beautiful years, these toddler, gorgeous, amazing, formative years and wasn't as present as I could have been. And that fear drives me to just invest almost entirely in her at this stage, which, you know, which is my choice. And as she enters school and gets a bit older, I'm sure that will shift and change. But at the moment, my life is essentially her and work. And that's basically it. I think with parenting, we're all just doing the best that we can. I mean, you know, you can read as many books as you want, speak to as many parenting guides. When it comes down to it, it's who knows, we're fumbling through and just hoping that our children end up all right at the back of it. I think it just love, security. and love. When I'd get upset with mum when we first separated and I'd be so worried about the impact on her, which is, of course, the greatest, you know, thing that you worry about when you've got kids, when you're separating, is is she okay? Does she, she, how could, she was three, how could she understand what's happening? Why are mum and dad together? Why do I have two houses? Why blah, 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 blah. And every time mum would see her, mum would just say she's just the most secure little girl. You can just tell she is so secure. And that's the thing that I'm really proud of is that her father and I really have always put her first Mm. and we co-parent brilliantly. We both love her more than life itself and I do genuinely feel like she is just this incredible secure, happy little girl. I'm still terrified that we're not doing something right or that there's impacts of our separation that 
will be felt later or, or signs will come or if she's naughty here, is that because we separated or if she went in her dinner, is that because we separated? Like it's, you know, I can drive myself crazy. But really at the end of the day, she's so loved and adored yeah. and hopefully she's secure and that's, um, I think, you know what, if you can create that environment for a child, then all the other shit is just an added bonus. Yeah, that reminds me that on the panel how Sam Squires was talking about just being kind to yourself and... I think that helps a lot when we talk about love because if we have love for ourselves, then we're able to give it to others, which is so unbelievably important. Throw a bit of yoga in there and now, like, I can't get as much done, but my most important advice is I'm just kind to myself. So if I'm feeling run down, then I won't and it's okay. If I don't get sessions out in the week, that's okay. If I go the whole week without doing it, for some reason I'm busy or I'm sick, it's okay. I give myself permission. What is your greatest hope for society today? Oh, great question. I haven't really thought about this. I genuinely am very concerned with, I mean, just the global geopolitical situation at the moment is terrifying. When you look at at different countries around the world, the war in Ukraine, peace is something that I crave immensely and and not just inner peace, but absolutely, but the peace of our world. My dad was very passionate about this, about national security and about the fact that we are in a really, really terrifying space right now when it comes to a heap of different issues globally. And if any of them blow up, then inner peace won't matter much at all because, you know, we could be in war. So, th- so that's something that, that really does play in my mind because we are in a really terrifying space. So peace, absolutely. And, and just kindness. I, I have this, I never want to walk away from an interaction with someone and have them feel that I was dismissive or they weren't worthy of my time or, or that they weren't special. I, anytime I interact with anyone, I, all I want is for them mm. to walk away and feel like they mattered and I made them feel special and that I valued that interaction. And I think if, if we can do that on a global scale, the world might be a, a better place. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, another great question. It's really interesting. My answer to that would have been different three years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, completely different. I was always raised to believe that health and happiness were the two most important things, not success, not financial gain, not achievements, those two things. And so I've always had that. But a life of greatness, I look at my dad, who we spoke about earlier, and I think when you die, which is the end of life, those people at your hospital bed, Mm. those people holding your hand, those people who loved you, for you, are the only thing that matters. Dad had his laptop bag next to him in the hospital because he was always working that didn't get opened. No one cares what's in that. Nothing else matters mm. but the people that that you love and the people that love you. And I think that that really me, for me, a life of greatness is loving with everything I've got and being loved in return by the people that that matter to me and feeling that I always did things that were genuine, that were authentic, that I cared about and that in some small way, shape, I've 
left this place slightly better than, than when I came. I think that's a life of greatness. All the other stuff, the jobs, the gigs, the money, the houses, doesn't count for shit. Mm. It's those people holding your hand in that hospital bed. Erin Mullen, I know that your dad would be looking down. Very proud of you. Thank you for being a trailblazer in everything that you've done and all the work that you do is so impactful for so many people. So thank you for the conversation today. Thank you very much. And I will do something soon without crying, my Lord. (laughs) Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. If you like this episode with Erin Molan, then you'll be keen to hear my chat with actor and advocate Cameron Daddo. We discuss the darkness of Hollywood, battling addiction and finding happiness in the everyday. Search A Life of Greatness Cameron Daddo wherever you get your podcasts.